believe that colleges and universities have great capacity for institutional transformation. And we saw that last March when all 99.9% of American higher education went online in a matter of weeks, if not days. Uh, and yeah, we could we could talk about that being remote instruction, emergency instruction rather than online learning. We could talk about the many downsides, pitfalls, mistakes, and so on. But my point here is that we did something literally extraordinary and also literally unprecedented. Um, and we did that in a hurry with no extra resources. And um, I think we haven't really commended ourselves or applauded that nearly enough. And some of the staff who made that happen didn't get nearly enough um, applause. I'm thinking instructional designers, educational technologists, academic computing specialists. And that was a lot of work in a hurry. Um, so we have that capacity. We have that potential. Hello. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You. I am so excited to have as today's guest, Brian Alexander. And we do uh, have Brian's complete bio included uh, as a link in our show notes. So I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go through the entire bio at this point, but I do want to give you a few high-level uh, points. He is an award-winning, internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher working in the field of higher education's future. He speaks widely and publishes frequently, with articles appearing in many venues, including the Atlantic Monthly, Inside Higher Ed, and many, many more. He has been interviewed and featured in many different places, including the Washington Post, MSNBC, and we'll include the list of all of the other places uh, in the link to his bio. He hosts a weekly forum called the Future Trends Forum, where he and his guests address the forces of change that are underway in higher education. He is currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University and teaches graduate seminars in their master's program in learning design and technology program. His most recent book, Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education, which he did for Johns Hopkins University Press, published one year ago this month, January 2020, um, has won an Association of Professional Futurists Award. And in addition, uh, Brian was recognized by the CIC, which is the Council of Independent Colleges, as the recipient of the 2020 Academic Leadership Award for his visionary scholarship and creative contributions to digital learning and pedagogical innovation. And as a longtime member of the CIC, I know uh, firsthand how uh, significant that award is. So let me just say a, a, a word about his book. Uh, I had the opportunity to read it. Um, before the holidays. It is a highly compelling read. I believe it should be required reading for anyone studying higher education right now or anyone who cares about the well-being of the industry. So his background is indeed very impressive, but let me just, uh, I'm going to end with this. What I am most struck by is the extent of the important contributions that he is making to the higher ed community. We all owe Brian uh, a debt of gratitude for the steady stream of provocative and on-target insights 
that he has been putting out for the past several years, as well as for the conversations that he is holding with so many around the world and for the conversations that he is inspiring uh, on so many levels. So Brian, welcome to the Ingenious Community. We are so pleased to have this conversation with you today. Well, thank you very, very much for that enormously kind introduction. I was listening to it and thinking, who is she talking about? <laughs> And, and thank you for, uh, for hosting and for making the time. I'm very excited to talk with you. So let's jump right in. Uh, and I, I want to uh, ask you about something that has been said about you. There is a quote, uh, and here it is. Many people call themselves futurists. Brian actually knows how to do it. So what does it mean exactly to be a futurist? And how did you become a futurist in your field? Well, the, the, the very, very nice quote um, is from uh, Howard Rheingold, who is a uh, terrific journalist um, and also a futurist, the uh, leading thinker by virtual communities starting way back in the 90s and uh, uh, a bracing thinker about mobile technology as well as about uh, information literacy and uh, disinformation. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful person and uh, a very, very good friend. Uh, futurists are people that help other people think uh, more effectively, more creatively, and more strategically about the future. Uh, we rarely do predictions. In fact, people sometimes refer to that as the P word, and they don't want to do that. But the idea is to help people just really open up their thinking uh, about uh, their particular future. We often do this within a particular domain. So there are people who specialize in the future of warfare, the future of packaging, the future of work. My specialty is the future of higher education, um, and I'm pretty much one of very, very few people who do that. Um, but we uh, we use all kinds of methods. The uh, the modern profession dates back to the 1950s, uh, where and we have a whole established set of methodologies. Uh, most famously, people often think about uh, trends analysis or um, scenarios. In effect, um, you know, the future we can trace futures thinking, of course, back millennia. Um, but it's uh, it's a it's a very very exciting field. Uh, you asked how I got into this business. Well, from about 2002 to about 2015, I worked for a nonprofit called the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, or Nightly. And Nightly worked with between one and three hundred small liberal arts colleges uh, across the U.S. Uh, schools like, say, Mount Holyoke or Vassar or Pomona or Oberlin. And my job was to help them grapple with emerging technologies. And so if, if you think back to the distant past of, say, 2002, um, some of these emerging technologies were mobile devices and uh, what we now call social media, that kind of thing. Uh, and I found that in that work, my, my, my portfolio was emerging technologies, but I found that that kept creeping out beyond the limits of the, of the field. I, I kept thinking about other domains and how they impacted this throughout higher education, you know, how enrollment changes things, disciplinary differences and so on. And then bringing in outside, outside forces, changes in work, changes in macroeconomics, changes in demographics and so on. And at the same time, I, I realized that if I showed up on a campus and said, hello, let's talk about emerging technology, I would lose half the audience right away. <laughs> you would have people, especially in liberal arts colleges and universities, who would call themselves technophobes or Luddites, uh, you know, people, or people who just said, I don't have time to think about this. That's why you know, we have a technology staff on campus. We have a chief information officer and so on, and that's their job. I don't need to think about this. I heard someone once compare technology to uh, water on campus. You know, I, I, I want the water fountains to work. You know, I want the sinks to work in the bathrooms and so on, but I don't need to think about it. Um, so I thought, you know, really what I'm doing is I'm talking about the future of higher education as a whole. And emerging technology is one big part of that. So I, I dove into futures methodology. I dove into the field. Um, you know, I, I tapped a lot of things that I'd been reading before when I was in college and in grad school um, and, uh, you know, spent years fleshing this out and then started going to campuses and say, hi, let's talk about the future of higher education. Mm -hmm. And then everybody was interested. Everybody wanted to participate, even the people who call themselves Luddites. Uh, and then you could talk about higher education 
and uh, and technology in a very much more interesting and uh, rewarding way. So I, I I've just grabbed onto the future's handle and I, I haven't let go and I've been doing that ever since. Mm, boy, and talk about being uh, a person at the right time doing this kind of work right now. I I you know I can't imagine. Um, in fact, I was going to say, you know, when I read that your uh, book had been published in January of 2020, my first thought was, well, you probably had no idea what was coming when the book was published. But then I thought, no, I think you did have an idea because didn't you, weren't you one of, of those who uh, had uh, talked about the possibility of a pandemic as early as 2018? I did. Um, the uh... You know, this was um, this is one of those things where when you're a futurist and you uh, you uh, you nail something and you feel a little embarrassed by it. Um, but basically, I had uh, uh, in in the book there's uh, there's two passages. The the most notorious is on page 23, uh, where I ask people to imagine what would happen if a pandemic struck the world, and I specifically compare it to the Great Influenza of 1918-1919. Uh, and I, I flesh this out for a bit. I and mean, this is in an early chapter where I'm trying to get the readers to think more creatively about the future and I want to shake them up a bit. And I, I've used this prompt in classes and in presentations before. And it's very effective. Audiences would usually be shocked and then they would scramble uh, to think about the ways it would impact higher ed. And, and it's pedagogically, heuristically, it's a nice prompt because it, it cuts across a whole bunch of different domains. And uh, so I had this, of course, in the in the book. And up until March 2020, nobody paid attention to it. And ever since March 2020, people have been asking, Alexander, what dark forces are you in league with? What did you know? Who did you know? But the, but the fact is that the futurists have been thinking about pandemics since the 1990s. We've been running simulation games. We've been writing think pieces. It's because in the public health field, this has been a known thing. People have been expecting it. I mean, so... Uh, Ebola, SARS, MERS were early instances of this, but we've been expecting more. Um, and unfortunately, we just haven't been heeded very carefully. Um, mm -hmm. But I For think sure. after COVID, I think we will be. Why don't we dive into the book? Um, and for those who haven't yet read it, uh, can you provide a high-level overview of the key points? Um, and, and also tell us, why did you write the book? And what do you hope readers will most take away from it? Oh, very nice questions. Um, I wrote the book because I've been working on this field very closely. And when I say working on this field, I mean, I've been uh, publishing and making stuff, making content about the future of higher education. So, for example, for almost a decade now, I've been publishing a monthly trends analysis called the Future Trends and Technology and Education Report. And so that has you know, lots and lots of research crammed in it. And uh, I still publish that. And so I wanted to build on them. But I've also been giving a lot of presentations, workshops, and talks. And, and to do that effectively, I believe I, I had to have cutting edge, uh, thoughtful research. And I thought, you know, I, I need to wrap this up in a book um, so that uh, I can point people to that and then they can read that and then we can build on top of it. I, I wanted people to be able to improve their thinking about higher ed. So I was thinking about people who live within higher education, you know, administrators, faculty, staff, students, um, all kinds of researchers, but also people who are adjacent to higher education, uh, such as uh, all the businesses that swirl around us, like uh, uh, technology providers, publishers, uh, as well as people who are socially or politically connected. So thinking, for example, about alumni, but also about uh, you know, surrounding communities and the town-gown relationship uh, for public colleges and universities, thinking about uh, state governments as well as the federal government. Uh, so I want to just improve the, the conversation. Uh, if you haven't read the book, there are two main parts. Uh, the first part uh, is a trends analysis, looking at the major trends that are reshaping higher education. And these cut across a whole series of domains. So we talk about, for example, changes in demographics. We look at changes in macroeconomics. We look at changes in culture and policy. We also look at changes within higher education, uh, shifting enrollment numbers, for example, uh, the increasingly brittle financial model for higher education. Uh, and then we play all those out and extend them a bit to try and get a sense of where these forces could take higher education. 
And that leads to the second half of the book or the second part of the book, which is a series of scenarios. A, a scenario is just a, a story about a future uh, based on one or two things usually happening. So, you know, for example, what in economics, you know, what happens if you have a major recession? You know, how does that change things? Uh, so I looked at a few different possible models. For example, what if uh, healthcare becomes the dominant sector of the American economy? How does that change higher education? Uh, another scenario looks at the open paradigm. So open education resources, open source software, open access and scholarly publication. What would higher education look like if that whole paradigm won? Uh, another looks at uh, what I call uh, the peak higher education model which posits that American higher education reached full capacity in 2012 and has been actually inching back from that and sliding down every semester since. Um, and, you know, a few of these are based on different technologies. And then there's a kind of puckish one, which is based on anti-technological university. The, the goal here is that these scenarios aren't predictions for what all of higher education would look like in 10 or 20 years. The goal is to imagine different universities and colleges based on real world drivers that we see right now that we can point to and to get people to imagine them. Now, the thing about American higher education is that we have nearly 5,000 colleges and universities and they're scarcely organized at all. About a third of them are private and are independent, uh, like Georgetown, where I teach sometimes. Um, the two-thirds that are public uh, receive varying levels of oversight, not at the federal level, but barely at the state level, uh, with a lot of autonomy within them. And we have an extraordinary variety of institutions, everything from military academies to liberal arts colleges to community colleges to intensely religious universities to research universities, uh, serving all kinds of populations. And so... I, I think these scenarios can play out all of them at the exact same time. Um, you could have the uh, the retro campus I mentioned and 100 miles away, the uh, augmented campus and 100 miles away, uh, a city grappling with uh, the decline model and 100 miles away, campuses that are all based on healthcare and so on. Um, so, so that's the second the second part of the book. I'd like to ask you to dive in a little bit deeper to the scenarios, which I found mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating as well as a bit frightening and i'm mm -hmm. i'm not going to tell you which one i found most frightening although you can probably guess but mm. i'm 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 curious because you have gotten these come from your imagination but also your reading and interpretation of the trends uh which of these or is there one that that you believe is uh more likely than others to come to fruition um is there one that you're maybe most personally excited about well, that's a great question. And it's one of the reasons I think it's a great question is because this is the question that I ask audiences all the time when I present these scenarios. Um, and it's fascinating. It's a great diagnostic to give me a sense of uh, a population. Uh, when I present on these, the one that almost always gets voted on as most likely is what I call healthcare nation. So let me explain a bit. And, and thank you for noticing the, the way I construct scenarios. Um, I mean, scenario creation is actually a pretty detailed method. And there are a lot of uh, interesting ways of making it work. Healthcare Nation is based on the idea that uh, the American healthcare sector, I mean, the full, the full sector, I mean, everything from nursing and thoracic surgery to um, uh, medical records, to hospital administration, to alternative medicine, the whole thing becomes the biggest sector of the American economy. Um, much like you can think that um, industrial manufacturing was the biggest sector, um, you know, as late as the 1970s. And it can do so for a few reasons. One is that our unusual, if not unique, method of financing higher education, uh, sorry, financing uh, healthcare um, has really expanded the size of that sector economically because it's more expensive. It's well known that we pay more for higher for um, healthcare than almost anybody else in the developed world. Uh, another is that that adds another level of uh, business. You know, we have the enormous sector of of health insurance, as well as within uh, healthcare, we have so many people whose job is primarily just to run interfaces between patients, companies uh, along financial lines. Um, now, that's all in the present. We also know that demographically, our country is aging, like every other nation that goes through modernity. We know this pretty well. It's sometimes nicknamed the demographic transition. But basically, once you have a combination of factors, 
your population stops producing so many kids and lives longer. So you have fewer kids and more senior citizens, basically. And the U.S. is going through this. If we didn't have immigration, it would be really stark. Uh, Nations like Japan, uh, Finland, South Korea, you can see this very clearly. Um, And the U.S. is heading there. Uh, so what that means in terms of healthcare is that just statistically speaking, the older we are, the more healthcare we consume. Uh, so that means that demand for healthcare is just going to keep going up. Plus, if we look at one of the great strengths of American healthcare, uh, apart from its many weaknesses, one of the strengths is that we are an innovation hub. Uh, we, you know, we saw this with the vaccine development where we played a key role in that. Um, but also we constantly you know, produce new medical technologies, new therapies, I mean, new pharma, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So we have this economic engine that just keeps growing and growing. And how would this impact higher education? Think, think about it this way. It's almost impossible for a college or university to go wrong in offering more allied healthcare services. Um, either, uh, I'm sorry, healthcare uh, curriculum, if they offer a nursing program, if they offer, if they expand their psychology program, if they add a medical school, it's just the demand is always there uh, across the country. Uh, And it can be expensive and and logistically challenging, but it's always remunerative. And now with the pandemic, uh, back, you know, a year ago, um, almost, I was talking about the COVID curriculum, I theorized that we would see more people taking more classes in the full range of allied healthcare because either they looked at the economy, which was bad and is still bad, and they see that this is the one area where there are jobs, but also they might just think in terms of personal mission that, you know, this is a terrible crisis. Well, maybe I can participate and do my bit. You know, it's like 1941, I'm going to sign up for the army. Well, 2020, I'm going to sign up to become a therapist or to become a geriatric specialist or to become, uh, you know, someone who works in pharma or someone who does uh, electronic medical records and so on. Um, NPR called this the Fauci effect. Yes, yes. I just thought of that. that which is a cute name. But I, I, th- I think if we if we consider this as the COVID curriculum, yeah. uh, you can see more of this. So imagine, you know, 10 years from now, it's just that there's the it's it's a kind of undramatic change in a way campuses and universities just look they look the same except their medical wings are a lot bigger now a flip side of this might be that this leads to other units shrinking just in terms of resource allocation uh, such as the arts and humanities you also might see a hybridization where you see more of the arts and humanities try to play a role in this healthcare nation scenario. So they may offer more classes and more research in philosophy and uh, euthanasia, for example, or the history of pandemics, uh, the sociology of disease, that kind of thing, um, or both. I mean, you could see uh, you know the number of majors in, say, art history dropping like mad, but more classes being taught with an emphasis on the, you know images of disease in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, whenever I present this scenario, people say, "Oh yeah, this is going to happen." Especially, especially in the Midwest and the Northeast, where the populations are um, aging especially fast. Do you have another scenario that you would describe as? You know, if if you had a magic wand and could bring one of these to to life, yeah, you're... I I have two, I have two. Uh, one of them is the open, uh, the triumph of open, uh, which I sometimes nickname the fall of the silos. So just just to explain, uh, if you look at the uh, textbook world right now, uh, the majority of textbooks and learning content um, are owned and generated by publishers, and they are often expensive. In fact, there's a lot of criticism about how expensive textbooks are. So in opposition to this, there is the Open Education Resources Movement, or OER, which argues that you can make textbook and other learning content available either for free or for very low cost. And um, people have been working on this for almost 20 years, and there's a good body of material that's out there. There's a wide range of projects. Uh, Out in California, there's a project, a very California name called Merlot, uh, which is just basically uh, an enormous Netflix-like um, catalog of open uh, materials for learning. Uh, there's publishers like OpenStax who uh, publish uh, 
uh, free or very, very low cost uh, print on demand uh, open textbooks in a wide variety of areas. I mentioned the SUNY system in New York. Um, there is the Open SUNY project, which helps faculty create and find open content. In fact, we've, we've even seen the development in the community college space of what are called Z classes or Z degrees. And the Z there stands for zero materials cost. So, you know, you take this class in, you know, automotive mechanics or culinary arts, and you will pay zero dollars for textbooks because they're using open materials. So this could be the majority. We could flip over to having the majority of, uh, of materials being available in open uh, education resource formats. We could see something similar happen with scholarly publishing. I mean, right now, scholarly publishing is dominated, like the textbook company, by a like the textbook field, by a series of scholarly companies that are publishing companies that, per that uh, often make enormous profits. Um, and they publish in very closed environments, so you have to um, get behind a paywall in order to access them. Uh, there are other entities as well um, that uh, provide access. For example, a lot of small scholarly societies uh, will follow that strategy. And they don't get rich. They just make enough money to stay alive. Uh, and then there's the incredibly ambitious and very, very useful JSTOR, uh, which uh, makes money to keep itself going. It's very sustainable, and it provides access to a lot of the scholarly record uh, in a very nice way. So the open access movement suggests that people around the world should have access to scholarly content for free, or again, for a very low cost, and it should be open. That is, it should be easily shareable. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of that this year, um, starting in February, as a bunch of big publishers like Nature, Wiley, uh, Elsevier, and Springer uh, gave access to uh, COVID content and COVID-related content uh, for free that you could access. And they still do that, um, and you can find some of that, which is very, very good. Um, but there have been people working on this field again for about 20 years to try to boost uh, access and boost content into the open access space. Uh, in fact, right now, if you want to get really, um, really geeky about this, there's a European project called Plan S, uh, which is trying to push a lot of content in a hurry into open. And uh, it's very controversial right now. Um, but this is a, this is a world which is really led by publishers and by uh, librarians and by activists. Um, and again, like with OER, OA could flip to a majority. Um, so I, I think if we get to that point, there are some downsides, which I explore in that chapter, in that scenario. But there are some great upsides. Um, and one of them is simply just the uh, saving money for students, uh, being able to pay less for, uh, for textbooks, which is a huge boon straight up. And when I, when I talk to academic audiences about this faculty, you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe the content isn't quite as good. I mentioned this to students, and the students are like, oh, yeah, let's do it right now. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High-quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field.
The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Baypath University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. things you know as I went, I went through and I read I read the scenarios and they're they are a rich catalog of highly imaginative innovative thinking um, with lots of great ideas that really should be on the radar for institutions and, but but then as somebody who's lived in the trenches of an academic institution mm-hmm. for most of my life I mm-hmm. thought what would it actually take to incubate some of these ideas and and do you think it can be done from within an institution or is it going to require some kind of external impetus? Well, it's a great question. It's a great question. And just for one footnote, if we can circle back later on, perhaps my other favorite scenario is the Renaissance one. I'd be happy. Yes. To oh, good. Yeah, yeah, we, let, we do need to go back because I like that one too. But how we, how we change. I, I, I believe that colleges and universities have great capacity for institutional transformation. And we saw that last March when all 99.9% of American higher education went online in a matter of weeks, if not days. Uh, and yeah, we could we could talk about that being remote instruction, emergency instruction rather than online learning. We could talk about the many downsides, pitfalls, mistakes, and so on. But my point here is that we did something literally extraordinary and also literally unprecedented. Um, and we did that in a hurry with no extra resources. And um, I think we haven't really commended ourselves or applauded that nearly enough. And some of the staff who made that happen didn't get nearly enough um, applause. I'm thinking of instructional designers, educational technologists, academic computing specialists. And that was a lot of work in a hurry. Um, So we have that capacity. We have that potential. The other thing is, I mean, academia is blessed by having so many smart people and committed to really thoughtful nonprofit work. I mean, that's that's a tremendous, tremendous thing. Um, And so we have we have the brain power to tap. Um, now, external forces are pressing on us. I mean, I, I mentioned some, you know, some of these trends before, but you were asking about uh, external actors, and I do think uh, there is pressure from governments, and we've seen this for the past, oh gosh, thirty years. We've seen state governments uh, lean on colleges and universities not to increase tuition too much. We've gotten different signals from the federal government, depending in part on who's in office and uh, who's paying attention. Um, the last Obama administration department, uh, secretary of education at one point said that inequality in higher education is so bad, it may as well be apartheid. Um, you know, but then the Obama administration spent seven years trying to change and improve higher education, whether we wanted it or not, and, and clearly failed. Uh, they clearly failed in that effort. The only outcome was the uh, college scorecard, which is uh, massively uh, underutilized, um, and companies and nonprofits want to uh, improve us, sometimes for uh, purely uh, self-interested reasons and sometimes for uh, humanitarian reasons because of all the problems we have. And we can talk about student debt, which is now circa $1.6, $1.7 trillion, uh, which is insane. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's already having an impact on demographics and that it's pressing down on people's desire to have children. It's having an impact on the economy because people with large amounts of debt are less likely to uh, do capital purchases like buying cars or buying homes. I mean, and it's a humanitarian nightmare. Um, and there are all kinds of other problems that that tempt external forces to uh, intervene. Uh, this past couple of years, for example, there's been a lot of free speech arguments and platforming arguments and different state legislatures have been interested in that. But within higher education, I think we have a capacity to do a great deal. Now, I mean, the way this works, the problem is there are some things that are tricky. I mean, one is that, and this kind of thinking is inherently interdisciplinary. You know, you've got to think about um, in academic terms, you have to think about this in terms of economics, in terms of sociology, in terms of political science, and 
as much as academia loves talking about how we like interdisciplinarity, we remain fiercely disciplinary in our reward structure and our promotion tenure the tenure and review structure. So we have to break across those silos. And that takes work. And that can take bottom-up work from faculty and staff crossing those boundaries and may take uh, top-down pressure from, uh, you know, presidents and deans who try to make this kind of thing available and accessible and clear the way. Uh, it also takes uh, imagination to imagine a different way of doing things. And that's kind of hard because we, a lot of academics get into academia because we love our one narrow field. We love cell biology. We love the library. We love 18th century literature. And we want to stay there. And then we kind of outsource the rest of college university operation to other professionals on campus who can handle recruitment of students, alumni relations, HR, and all that good stuff. Uh, so it, it's hard for us to crack out of that. Um, I think a great, I mean, I hope my book can play a role in helping give uh, ways of thinking ahead that way. I'd also recommend my friend David Staley's book, Alternative Universities, which is just a set of visionary possibilities for where higher education could go. It's a bracing draft of the imagination, which I, I really, I've taught it. I've interviewed him. He's just a fantastic guy. Um, but a lot of that's yes, kind of thing. Yes, I, I agree. We had him on the podcast oh, um, great. in season one. And oh, uh, I found his models equally uh, imaginative. So mm. I agree with that. And then the only other thing I would, I would advise is, is that we have to collaborate in ways that can be surprising. Uh, American higher education is fiercely competitive. Uh, we, uh, colleges and universities fight with each other for, uh, for funding for students all the time. It's very difficult for us to collaborate. Um, and, uh, I, I heard one, uh, one president told me why he never supports collaboration. He told me whenever he goes to his trustees, they have never asked him about collaboration. Instead, they always ask him, quote, how are we crushing the competition? Unquote. Um, but we have to, we have to reach out and work with our work with peer institutions and non-peer institutions. There's all kinds of fantastic possibilities can be realized when the community college the Research One University and Liberal Arts College sit down together at a table. I, I did some work a few years ago for a, a group that was liberal arts colleges and military academies. What I mean, mm. talk about colliding worlds and yet how fruitful that is. That's productive friction in all kinds of great ways. So, yeah, we can do this. We can reinvent higher education starting right now. It just takes a little bit of thought. Oh, for sure. And and you're actually you're you have a very positive mindset about this, which I think is is uh, is helpful. Now, let me give you an opportunity to talk about the Renaissance uh, scenario, because I, I think that is a really interesting uh, uh, model uh, as well. Well, this this draws on, on, on some things that I've written about in other books. Um, the idea is I, I picked the Renaissance model very carefully. Um, if we look at, say, the Italian Renaissance or the English Renaissance, not so much the Scots Renaissance, but particularly the English and the Italian ones, we see this enormous bloom of arts and creativity, you know, everything from architecture to engineering, to poetry and painting, famously, famously. Um, at the same time, we see a lot of chaos, you know, uh, foreign invasions, plagues, disasters, tyrannies. I mean, that's why I, I didn't I didn't think so much about the Scots Enlightenment um, or Renaissance because it's, it's fantastic, but it doesn't have as many of the downsides. So my, my theory was that we could look back from the year 2030 or so and look back at the previous generation or two and think of it as a renaissance. That is, we experienced an enormous blossoming of human creativity. At the same time, all kinds of costs and bad things. Um, but we had that. And so it's, it's important to think about this. And for my students, uh, I often have to you know, do a little historical footwork to make this work. You think of the middle to the late 20th century, the media field was dominated by capital intensive, uh, very high bar to entry enterprises. Uh, so if you wanted to make a movie, you had to go to Hollywood, convince producers, raise money, all that stuff. If you wanted to make a TV show, same thing. If you wanted to write a book, you'd have to approach a publisher. I mean, and so on. Uh, it was, uh, you know, radio was even harder. If you, same with music. Um, and so, and that's not how human history worked. 
uh, up until the 1920s or so, uh, we have a long tradition of humans making their own art. Uh, before record players became a, a commercial thing, uh, the biggest way that people made money in music was by selling sheet music so that people could play a piano or play the banjo and make music themselves. Think barbershop quartets, for example. Uh, but from about 1920 to about, about 2000, we went the other way. We have these big giants who dominated. Well, the digital world broke that open so that the tools for creativity started trickling in to everybody's users. And then that trickle became a torrent so that anybody now who has access to the basic tools, I mean, a smartphone, a laptop, some basic internet connection, can now not only access this huge amount of creative work in music, spoken word, and video, and gaming, and writing, but they can make their own which is why why YouTube exists. You know, so much user-generated content. You think about the blogosphere, so derided, but this enormous empire of so much writing. You think about the, the visual world. You look at uh, uh, platforms like Flickr or Instagram, you know, just how much just DIY photography people have been doing. Um, Bandcamp, for example, is this home to just enormous amounts of music. And YouTube, by the way, is also the home of a lot of music. So... Uh, and why this matters for education is that it has empowered everybody within academia to become makers and creators where students can make games, where faculty members can make videos, where staff members can make podcasts, where presidents can write blogs and so on. That we, So we've had this big torrent of creativity and we haven't, we haven't fully appreciated, I think, because in part because there's you know, a focus on what the British call the tech lash, the, the big criticisms of Silicon Valley giants. And also, you know, since Trump, there's been a, a renewed focus on disinformation and bad information. But I think also, you know, as Gregory Bateson said uh, once, you know, the hardest thing for a fish to notice is water. Um, you know, we're, we're swimming in all this right now. Um, so I wanted to step back from that water that we swim in and draw attention to it put it into the future, add it to higher education and say, look at all of this, look mm -hmm. at this renaissance. We should, we should think about this and appreciate it and we should support it. You know, we should encourage the creative making work of everybody in academic enterprise. So I don't know if this comes across in my tone or my word choice, but I, I, th I think for me in many ways, that's my, uh, my favorite. Yeah, no, and it's very exciting to think about actually. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for including it in your book. Um, because I think it is, uh, of all the models, uh, the one that inspires the most imagination to consider. Mm, so, thank you. um, let me ask you in your book, uh, you call for universities to have a futuristic oriented mindset. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, uh, and the question really is on two levels. First of all, how might a leader actually make that happen? in the collective sense. And, and so that's the first part of the question. The second is for a higher ed professional or an emerging leader who just wants to become more futuristic and maybe do what you do, or at the very least uh, hone their ability to look ahead and make sense of trends and, and data, what, what yeah. kind of guidance might you, might you provide? Are there some essential sources that higher ed mm -hmm. leaders should mm -hmm. be following uh, and, and so on? Well, I think there are a lot of ways to approach this. There's a, a kind of um, consumer side focus, which is to say, we're going to um, we're going to grab as much futures content as possible and soak it up and think about it. And that, that's that's good. I mean, there's a lot of futures work out there. You could look at some of the um, uh, interesting stuff being done by folks like Michio Kaku or Yuval Harari about you know broad changes to uh, to the future. Um, you could definitely definitely look at science fiction um, because science fiction is working on this all the time, constantly trying to push the, you know, um, everything from print science fiction, which has always been poking at the future to visual science fiction, you know, look at a TV series like devs uh, or a movie like ex machina. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons for this is that designers are often inspired um, by the visions of science fiction. Um, and you, there, for example, there's this hilarious moment back when um, Samsung, I believe, was uh, fighting with Apple in court about the, who invented the iPad. And uh, at one point, the Samsung lawyers wheeled in a video 
of the movie 2001 a space odyssey um, because in there you see uh, characters looking at uh, a tablet computer and they say yeah see we didn't invent this the idea was out there you know that kind of <laughs> um i think apart from the consumption oriented way which is a good way to get thinking about this there's also more of the um productive side which is to have people uh, do research look into the future and uh and by people i mean a, a cross domain uh team so you know get people from the library get people from multiple disciplines get people from uh, information security get people from alumni relations to scan the horizon for what they're seeing uh, what their research is picking up and for them to pool their research and to try to identify signals or trends uh, which is a really great exercise. It's a great exercise for getting people talking to each other and working together and appreciating their unique perspectives. Uh, and it's also just, it's I think, very empowering uh, to give people a sense of agency. And then they can make stuff happen. They can publish reports. Uh, for example, the uh, library group, the OCLC, uh, used to publish uh, uh, horizon scans of the future of libraries all the time. Teams can do this quite easily. There are a lot of sources out there that show you how to do this. They could build scenarios. I mean, scenario planning is an established tool. So, you know, pick one or two trends, build some scenarios out of that. And again, there are a lot of ways of doing this. But I, I think I think the third part of this is that you need to have some kind of some kind of structure. It might be at Georgetown. We have this great uh, unit called the Red House, run by the uh, awesome Randy Bass, um, mm -hmm. whose job it is to reinvent the university. So you might create a kind of think tank like that or a you know, think-do tank like that uh, on campus. You might do it as a skunk works if you're nervous about um, you know, blowback or, or political side effects. So you do it just quietly on the QT. Maybe you make a formal team, you know, give it an endorsement from your trustees and um, print t-shirts and have tattoos and call it something, you know, our future agency. Um, the key thing is to get this rolling. A, a friend of mine who works at a, a liberal arts college that I won't name, um, spent a year talking to his faculty and asking them, where do you think we're going to be in 50 years? And he told me 90% of them said we'll be exactly the same. Mm. So you want to avoid that. And you want to you know, use these different practices to get people thinking and, uh, and to shake them up. And then once you've got these visions, then the practical work is saying, all right, well, how do we get there from here? Or how do we avoid getting there if it's a, if it's a scary vision if you don't want that to happen you know how do we ward that off how do we avoid that and then that's that's practical strategic stuff that feeds right into strategic planning that you know at, at any level from an entire campus down to an individual unit a department or a uh, uh, an office on campus you know an it department or a uh, um, enrollment management unit or a registrar thinking ahead about where these could be um so, I mean, those, those are a, a few ways. I, th I think it's an exciting process. It's one that honors the intellectual firepower of higher ed. Uh, and I think done right, it's very creative and, uh, and empowering. Mm, but structure and intentionality, mm -hmm. it sounds like, mm -hmm. are, are mm -hmm. key yeah. to actually making something happen. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a great segue to, I, I want to ask you about one of the courses and projects that you've been working on since last summer, which has a great name. I don't know if you came up with the name, but Higher Education's Big Rethink uh, is the name of the course and project. And I think our listeners would love to, to hear about this. When I first heard about it and I, I saw the list of people you were having conversations with, I thought, boy, this would be great input for any college's strategic planning process to your previous point, because you are well, let me let me have you talk about what it is, what you're doing, and uh, what you've learned uh, in the process. Well, thank you for asking. This is a great project, and no, I did not come up with it. As far as I know, it was Randy Bass's term. Uh, the idea was to take a look at the year 2020 and see how higher education was rethinking itself based on two major forces. Uh, one of those forces is the COVID-19 pandemic threat, and the other was the kind of big rethinking going on socially uh, across the country about anti-black racism uh, really really spurred by the summer murder of uh, george floyd uh, and so during we had kind of two phases of this or 
back that we have a few different parts. One part of this was to have a seminar, a graduate seminar uh, at Georgetown, although obviously because of the pandemic online, uh, about this topic where students would research uh, what was happening. And they did this in a few ways. They looked at some big picture uh, data. They also did case studies of individual campuses. And the idea was to get a, a real-time sense of how these changes were occurring. And uh, it's it, it's fun to do this in a live seminar because you're kind of like you know as the cliche goes you're building an airplane while you're in midair um so we did one of these seminars in the summer and one in the fall and these are both really exciting uh and and very challenging uh, to do and there's a group of faculty um who contributed uh to all of this uh some wonderful people in uh, georgetown's uh learning design technology program and then along with this, uh, we interviewed a bunch of thought leaders and representative institutional leaders uh, about their thoughts on this. And it, it was great to do this. We, the graduate students generated a series of wonderful questions, uh, everything from you know, what data do you collect to how do you measure success to how did you handle you know, CARES money? Um, and uh, where do you think this is going? And we did these video interviews with, gosh, right now, I want to say it's like 26 people. Um, and they're very rich. They're very thoughtful, very passionate, uh, mostly in the U.S., a few abroad, um, and published those to the web so everyone can soak them up. And the students also, on top of that, added some more stuff. They added their summaries. They added some links and bios, just great work. Uh, on top of that, uh, students and the faculty work together to produce reports and analyses, and these are in different stages of different publication pipelines. Um, but out the other side of them should come some very, very useful stuff, um, basically trying to analyze what happened and what we can learn from that. Uh, how do campuses respond to a, a social transformation uh, like the 2020 Black Lives Matter uh, movement? You know, how do we adjust ourselves in the face of a pandemic? I mean, not just moving online, but how do we change uh, everything from teaching and learning centers to how we assess faculty performance to how do we shift funding around? Um, you know, what happens with student analytics and data analytics as a whole? Um, so there's a lot, a lot of lessons out there, a lot to be learned that uh, will be coming out uh, in different stages over time. Um, and hopefully more, hopefully more to come as well. Boy, what a rich resource that's going to benefit uh, the entire higher ed community. Is, is there one or two themes that have emerged so far that uh, you consider to be really important takeaways or is it too early to, to draw any conclusions? There are a few. Um, and there's an open question too. Um, one of the, I think really positive uh, takeaways uh, is that 2020 saw higher ed kind of recommit to teaching and learning. We had to move online uh, in the spring. And then in the fall, we had this mixture of approaches. And I was talking earlier about how we have so many different institutions that are semi-autonomous and not openly autonomous. And we have all of these uh, different approaches. So about one quarter of campuses opened for face-to-face -face instruction, about one quarter stayed um, online. Um, half did some kind of combination uh, or blend of online and face-to-face. -face. So, you know, my son goes to the University of Vermont and they basically split their catalog in half. They had classes that were entirely online, classes that were entirely face-to-face. -face. Um, so uh, given all that mix, um, you know, we found uh, across the board, campus is trying to make the teaching and learning experience better. Uh, people, you know, they're, they didn't want to uh, lose out from the benefits of face-to-face -face, and they wanted to make sure that faculty had the resources to teach better online. I mean, something I never taught online before at all um, and had to learn in a hurry. Um, thankfully, we had the professional heft of instructional design uh, to help out along with a generation or two of research, which is just great. Um, so I think that, and that recommitment showed up in different levels. It showed up in in uh, increased support for teaching and learning centers. It showed up in lots of faculty ad hoc uh, peer support. Uh, so I think that's one, uh, one commit, one really powerful lesson. Uh, a second lesson is that we were just financially clobbered 
I mean, across the board uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, a lot of campuses saw some downward uh, pressure on enrollment, um, especially international students. Uh, some experienced big cuts from state governments, which the federal government tried to make up for in the CARES Act, but it was not nowhere near enough. Um, and campuses also had increased costs. They had to pay more for you know, deep cleaning of camp of classrooms. They had to you know, spend more on PPE and plexiglass and so on. Uh, so one thing we saw was campuses coping with this. And some of the coping mechanisms included lots of furloughs, uh, lots of compensation cuts, or faculty and staff being laid off, programs closed, um, as well as faculty and staff having to do more with less. Um, and that's uh, not a happy story uh, in all cases. Uh, in fact, not in most cases. Uh, but it's something that shows how we respond to that financial challenge. The open question that I mentioned, uh, it has to do with anti-racist activism. Um, and when we, the Big Rethink team interviewed all of these people, this kept coming up as a question. Is 2020 a historical blip? Is this a moment where everyone buys Robin D'Angelo's book, reads it, and then puts it aside and never thinks about it again? Um, you know, do we rename a bunch of buildings? Do we commit to some hiring practices? And then it it just gets forgotten about. I mean, is this a, a, is this movement uh, an impulse of a moment um, to be forgotten, or at least you know, recede into the historical record, or is this one that becomes an ongoing? Uh, cultural transformation of higher education? Do we see structural changes in order to better support uh, people of color on campuses? Do we see changes in outreach to K through 12 in order to uh, better recruit uh, uh, Black and Latinx scholars in, uh, especially in underrepresented fields? Um, what other kinds of transformation do we see? Does decolonizing the curriculum become uh, a mainstream offer? And that's an open question. Uh, you know, we're, we're, I don't have a good sense of, of which way that can play out. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see individual campuses differ greatly on how they approach. You may have a campus with a diversity office that is incredibly active, well-funded, and has a lot of support from faculty and does a lot of great work. Maybe other campuses where this just gets put in the back burner and stays there. Um, in part because we have so many other things to worry about and the financial hits just keep coming. Um, so I, I, that's an open question that uh, I want to pose based on the experience of the big rethink. Mm, boy. So if people want to learn more about the project and the information as you are making sense of it, where, where's the best place for them to go? You want to go to uh, the, uh, uh, Georgetown Learning Design Technology um, page. So just go to ldt.georgetown.edu uh, slash big rethink. Hang on a second. Let me make sure I got the exact, uh, excuse me. That's uh, ldt.georgetown.edu slash higher hyphen educations hyphen big hyphen rethink. Okay. That's a long one. You know, we'll, we'll post the link in the, in the show um, in the show notes. Cause I think people will be interested in learning more and staying in touch with, uh, with what is coming out as you are continuing to make sense of all of this really, really rich information. Um, so we are coming to the end of our time here and we do have a signature question we ask of every guest. And so, um, I have to ask you this as well. I know people will be interested in in your perspective. So here's the question, Brian. For college presidents, provosts, and deans who are living in the midst of this reality that you describe so very well in your book, how would you advise them to plan beyond the pandemic? So as they are looking beyond the next year and out further, are there some essentials that you think that just about everybody needs to have on their radar? Yeah, I mean, on the top level, you want to do two things. You want to think about all the forces that were acting on higher education before uh, COVID-19 appeared. And then you want to think hard about the lessons of COVID and what what we've experienced. Um, and it's it, it takes a little effort to do the latter because we're, we're immersed in it. But uh, I think there's been some really good observations, some really good work done on this. Um, you know, some very, very good writing. Uh, Nicholas Christakis's book, uh, Apollo's Arrow, is a great history of the pandemic. Um, 
last week or so, uh, the New Yorker had a, a long read, wonderful piece by Lawrence Wright. Um, I think just called a plague year, uh, which was uh, trying to summarize what happened, but also to draw some lessons from it. Um, so we need to do those two things uh, and think about some, you know, some very powerful forces and, and how they change things. So we think about the, uh, for example, the uh, increasing economic inequality that we experience. And that's inequality based on income uh, as well as based on wealth. And one of the problems for American higher education is that our, our last big redesign was in the 1960s when American society was economically uh, much less unequal, um, more, uh, more equal, if you will, uh, than it is now. Um, and so we have all kinds, we haven't really grappled with this yet. And we have to think about everything from how we do fundraising to what careers we support and how we teach. Um, and we have to we have to mind this very carefully because it there's a lot of politics around inequality. Uh, you have to look hard at the data and the work by great scholars like uh, uh, Emmanuel Saiz or Thomas Piketty um, to really get a handle on that. Think about demographics. I mean, demographics is not destiny, but in many ways, demographics are, are hard to think about. Um, in part because uh, I'm, I'm going to guess mostly you and I both grew up with. Uh, um, the idea that the human population was exploding and was going to destroy the world, uh, you know, books like uh, the population bomb and, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, of, uh, of, of fears about, about that. And they turned out to be wrong. Uh, what happened instead was that um, the human race in different ways decided to produce fewer kids. Um, and this is in many ways a fantastic story of especially women's empowerment uh, it's a fantastic story about medical innovation that really doesn't get nearly enough attention, I think. Um, but it transforms our society in ways we haven't really planned on. And when we start looking at it, we run into all kinds of tricky problems of religion, of ideology. And we're, we're talking about sex. We're talking about death. We're talking about family choices. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard stuff to look at, but the, the data is pretty solid. Uh, so we have to think, you know, that K through 12 population is narrowing. So if you're a college or university that focuses on that traditional age population, what do you do? Do you just fight harder to, you know, grab your share of that body? Or do you, do you pivot in another direction? Do you try to ramp up your teaching of international students? And there's some interesting dynamics and problems along that line. Or do you pivot to teach more adults? Or in fact, the big thing that I'm waiting to see people take seriously is teaching senior citizens. And not just as, a, mm. not just as a, you know, kind of one-off uh, public good things, but, but, but uh, as courses and uh, also in terms of residential housing. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of creative work that can be done there. Um, so think about those forces. I mean, there are a lot of other forces to think about. Um, again, that's why I wrote the whole book on this thing. You're thinking about technology and the many different affords of technology. And basically right now, technology is not going to save anybody money. And if you do it right, technology, it costs money. Um, if you do it badly, you can cost money too. But if you do it well, uh, it costs money. But what it can do is it can improve your research enterprise it can improve your student learning and it can also grow your student body um, by grappling for again that competitive market of students um, and i think done well you get a really really positive world of education um, but we I, I think all kinds of deans all kinds of vps all kinds of department chairs have got to be wrestling with these with these factors and then wrestle with them together uh, use your peer groups, talk to the A through the AACNU, talk to um, finance people, talk through Nakubo. Uh, I don't have to tell librarians to collaborate. Librarians collaborate automatically. They're the greatest <laughs> collaborators in higher education. We can learn from them. Um, but then, you know, collaborate across those boundaries and really put your heads together. And we have the opportunity to reinvent higher education, to give us our own renaissance. We can do it. Now is the time. Mm. Boy, such wise words to begin uh, the new year with. So, Brian, is there anything else you wish I had asked you that I that I did not? Yeah, you you could you could have asked me about my next book, uh, which I'm writing right now. Um, and the problem okay. is, asking about and this would take a whole other episode. 
<laughs> okay, my, my, so we'll have you back my, my, for that. But at least tell us: do you have a do you have a title? Yes, yet? it's called "Universities on Fire." Uh, it's about okay. um, the future of climate change in higher education, uh, and uh, how that impacts uh, higher education, what higher education could do in response. Uh, everything from physical campuses to research agenda, town gown relations to the curriculum and pedagogy. Um, so that's something that I've, I've been working on and uh, uh, writing about. And um, so I've been doing presentations on this and I've been writing, you know, uh, little articles and a lot of blog posts. But the, the next book will be coming out from Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, as soon as I can, as soon as I can get it to them and as soon as they you know, think it's good enough to publish. Ryan, thank you so much for your presence with us today. I am personally grateful for you and for the leading edge thinking and work that you are doing that benefits all of us in the higher ed community. Melissa, you're so very kind. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, thanks to you for uh, producing this program. I'm, I'm honored and delighted to be part of it. And I wish you all the best. Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of CELLA, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed professionals, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. As a leader, the way in which we present ourselves is essential for establishing our credibility and for gaining trust. If this is something you have on your radar as a New Year's resolution, you will not want to miss next week's conversation. We will be talking with presentation coach and leadership training expert, Susan Daniels. As an actor, director, professor, soon to be published author, Susan uses her professional theater background to help students, faculty, staff, and senior executives in educational and corporate settings present themselves more authentically and effectively. Be sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this episode. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.